We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. I first met Congressman Steve Cohen when I went to Washington for a shadow hearing on the Equal Rights Amendment. I was instantly impressed with his candor, his humor, and his passion for doing the right thing. And each of those traits shine through in the conversation you're about to listen to. If you don't know Steve, he's a Democrat serving Tennessee's 9th District, which includes Memphis. He serves on the House Judiciary Committee, where he chairs the Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties. And I am so happy he agreed to come on the show so you all get to know how special he is. Moscow gives its imprimatur to actions. There is something afoul in the White House when the President of the United States goes up to Putin and says, I'm honored to meet you. Congressman, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Nice to be we with you. We are looking at images of you at that committee hearing today with what appears to be a bucket of fried chicken. And oh, there it is. You brought props, I see, with you here. What is the message you're trying to send? The message is that Bill Barr is a chicken. Doesn't it sound like an oxymoron to say Intel chairman and Nunez? The president slumped back in his chair and said, quote, oh my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm effed. This is Congressman Steve Cohen from Memphis, Tennessee. I've been fighting for justice my whole life, and that's not a short period of time. Let's get it done. Sorry, not sorry. Congressman Cohen, you serve on the Judiciary Committee in the House, which was obviously one of the major players in the impeachment process. Will you just take us into the room as the committee was debating this? I mean, what was it like? What were some of the considerations? Was it as contentious behind closed doors as it was in public? Well, we all knew it was history. There have been very few impeachments in the history of our country. And so we knew our committee had an important role and we had good staff and an outstanding committee. And we worked together as a team and everybody pretty much in the House Judiciary Committee sublimated their own egos and sacrificed what politicians hate to sacrifice. And that's self for the good of the whole, because we knew this was one of the most important activities we would participate in during our time in Congress. And that if it was effective and it was effective and that we impeached the president, unfortunately, it wasn't ultimately effective and that the Senate didn't convict him. But if they would have, it would have been what we felt was appropriate for he had violated the Constitution using his powers to try to get another government to basically blackmailing them, but trying to get them to give him information on his political opponent to come, his suspected political opponent, Joe Biden. 
in return for what the Congress had authorized, which was military aid to fight off an invasion from Russia. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Our Constitution embodies our values and laws and invests the power of our government and the authority of the people expressed through free and fair elections. When President Trump, for his own personal political gain, asked for a favor from a foreign leader, he did exactly what our founding fathers feared most. He invited the influence of a foreign power into our elections. This is one of the primary reasons the founders placed impeachment in our Constitution. Last week, Professor Carlin summed up his wrongdoing well when she stated, quote, when President Trump invited, indeed demanded, foreign involvement in our upcoming election, he struck at the very heart of what makes the, this country the republic to which we pledge allegiance. We felt a heavenly cause, and we did it together as a group, and there was a lot of camaraderie, a lot of understanding of the importance of the issue, and I think the fact that we sublimated ourselves for the whole, and it was the committee. You know, I just, I think that considering the very high threshold needed in the Senate to remove an impeached president, and really how divided we are right now as a nation, I'm wondering, I mean, is impeachment still a viable tool? Well, it doesn't seem to be. Yeah. The trial was not fair. The Republican members of the Senate, with the exception of Mitt Romney, who was heroic. Yes. And I will mention that he also was the person, along with Senator Lee, who initiated the idea of giving individual checks to Americans during this coronavirus pandemic. Yet Trump, who hates Romney, sent the letter and signed his name on the checks, which never should have happened. But regardless, the Republicans didn't listen. And they were not an open and fair-minded jury. And even when some senators said, well, I think he did something wrong, but I don't think it's enough to remove him from office. They weren't thinking objectively. They weren't thinking as an attorney, as many of them are. Are you confident that the president won't seek foreign assistance again? I believe that the president has learned from this case. What do you believe the president has learned? The president has been impeached. That's a pretty big lesson. I'm voting to acquit because I do not believe that the behavior alleged reaches the high bar in the Constitution for overturning an election and removing a duly elected president. It wasn't objective. They were thinking politically, and they didn't want to remove their president, even though a lot of them detest him. They really do detest him, and they know he's not up to the job, and he's not mentally balanced, but he's their PowerPoint. Power is the ultimate aphrodisiac, said Kissinger, and apparently it's that way for Susan Collins and you name it, the rest of the team. Okay, you ready for this question? <laughs> do you think... The way in which he has handled this pandemic is or has been impeachable. You could make that argument that uh, he hasn't defended and protected the American people. And that's his job. He takes, he takes his oath. He takes an oath to protect and defend the Constitution and to do all things that the president's power is to protect the American people. And he hasn't done that. I mean, you could say that, but it's for practical reasons, we can't try to impeach him again. I mean, it would just play into his hands. We've got to beat him in the ballot box in November. He's got to be beaten. 
I have a, a good friend sent me an email today, all concerned that, and I think he's right, that Trump will not leave the presidency no matter what the election results are. He will try to claim that the elections were not fair, try to get Republican secretaries of state not to count the final votes or to certify them, and that this thing could end up in the Electoral College. And if it gets there and they can't have sufficient votes for whatever reason, because of challenges to the accuracy of the votes, it could end up in the House. And in the House, each House, the states get one vote each. So it's not like if the Electoral College can't do it and go to the House, California's got 50 votes or whatever California's got in the number of reps. It, California gets one vote, the same as Idaho. Well, yeah, of course he's going to fight it because he's safer in office than he is as a civilian. Right. If he becomes a civilian, he's got a lawyer up. Yep. And he is highly protected right now. I mean, he's basically giving governors in blue states, you know, saying, here's the quid pro quo. You're nice to me. And then maybe we'll bail you out. I mean, this way in which he does business is so horrible. And so many people, I think, like, I almost feel like you'd have more support impeaching him based on the way he's botched this pandemic than I think before it was like, I don't know, it just felt like people weren't grasping. They were like, what, Ukraine and Biden wasn't his opponent yet. And I just think that the victim was the Constitution and democracy. And I think that that wasn't really a personable thing for people to get behind. And here, everyone knows someone that is suffering right now. And so I don't know, I just feel like has a president ever been impeached twice? The same president? Probably not. Never has. And the Republicans wouldn't vote any different. Romney would still vote the same way, possibly. You have to have legal basis. And some say that the impeachments, whatever the House says it is, the politics of it. But there are certain responsibilities of president and interfering with the last time with foreign governments getting it and basically blackmailing. I mean, telling them, I'm not going to give you this aid unless you do this for my political opponent. And that's just a pretty broad, straightforward violation of the Constitution. But the Republicans wouldn't go for it. I don't think they'd go for anything. They could catch him in the act and they would not care. It's so heartbreaking for someone like me who's been politically active since 2000. I feel like there was always some kind of voice of reason or, you know, an adult in the room or someone that even during the Bush era, he was it just felt like he was kind of a dummy. It didn't feel like he was maliciously trying to hurt people for his own benefit. No, he didn't do anything in that regard for his own benefit. And I don't think hardly anybody has done for their own benefit like Trump. Every historically corrupt person added together about equals this guy's uh, mendacity. I grew up revering political figures and presidents. I'm in my little office room in my home where I have a framed photograph of John Kennedy. I've got a inaugural poster of Clinton and Gore. I've got a Robert Kennedy framed stamp. And over here, I've got Roosevelt Truman campaign poster on my wall and a Johnson Humphrey campaign poster. So Mm -hmm. I've always loved the presidents. That's what I I studied. And it's hard for me to fathom. There's a president of the United States that I would not and have not shaken hands with and will not go in the White House while he's there because he's just the worst human being in the world. George Bush was like the White Album, the Beatles' White Album. That might be a little before your time. No, it's one of my favorite albums ever. You know, the little line on there, her majesty's a very nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. That's Bush. He's a very nice guy, but he didn't have a lot to say. But he was a nice guy. 
And I always thought of the White Album when I went and met him. And I hit that little balloon over my head. But he was a nice fella. And Laura Bush was, was a nice woman. And Trump is not a good human being. He's the worst human being that you could ever imagine. And Melania is just kind of probably sitting around with lawyers making sure that the prenup is good. A friend of mine was actually at a fundraiser where Bush spoke at the fundraiser. And he was called up and it was just huge applause and people standing and cheering for him. And he put his hands, both of his hands on the podium and he looked out in the crowd and he said, you're missing me now, aren't you fuckers? (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought that is the most perfect example, you know, but we can't also forget there were war crimes that, that Cheney Rumsfeld were two awful human beings and he gave up power. And that Cheney movie was what was happening. Cheney was running the show and Rumsfeld was, part of it, and they were two noxious people, and he let it happen. Right. Nevertheless, what he said last week was nice about we all need to be together. Let us remember that empathy and simple kindness are essential, powerful tools of national recovery. Even at an appropriate social distance, we can find ways to be present in the lives of others, to ease their anxiety and share their burdens. Then our ingrate president goes and attacks him. Just like he went after Wallace on MSNBC the other day. And then he went after Morning Joe. Yeah. Why can't he just go after the coronavirus? Just the fact that he held those press conferences. I mean, any other human, I feel like before every one of those press conferences, they would have had a moment of silence for those that we lost in the past 24 hours. There's been not one moment, not one moment where he has shown any empathy or compassion towards what we are struggling with right now as a nation and 30 million people are unemployed. I mean, nothing. There's no, there's nothing. He's got nothing. He's a cold hearted man. Hank Williams couldn't have said it any better. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So I want to shift a little bit to the election. The thing that keeps me up at night is election security, because, I mean, it's just coming from everywhere. We've got external agitators. We've got internal bad actors. We have unregulated companies making voting machines. We can't audit, but we seem to be able to hack with ease. So how are you securing elections? Well, the Democrats in the next CARES bill, which will be CARES 2, which we'll probably vote on next week, will have several provisions. It'll be a big bill, mostly for state and local governments, but there'll be a whole bunch of other areas that we'll get into, and one of them, which is voter security, and asking and requiring that absentee ballots be sent to every single voter in the country for the November election with postage taken care of so that people have an easy time to mark their ballot and send it in and get it counted. 
We'll have some technical reforms in there, too, about how they need to do it and make access available to everybody, make the polls available, et cetera, et cetera. But the big thing's getting people not to have to go and fear for their health. Wisconsin showed 50 or more people tested positive for coronavirus, and it was a result of having gone to the polls and stood in lines and being exposed on that particular occasion. We don't need to have this, and we should be looking out for our public health and for our democracy, because if people don't participate, that's an effect on the market. You know, I don't know where Trump is coming from thinking it's going to hurt him or hurt Republicans. I do know people. I had one lady write me, older African-American woman, and she said, don't you vote for that absentee voting. She said, I don't want to vote absentee. I'll walk over hot coals to vote against this man and stand in line for two hours. Yeah. She doesn't understand. She could, he said, probably have an option. She could do the absentee because I don't think we're going to get total 100% absentee or go vote. But there are, I think the African-American voter and the anti-Trump voter is so ready for him to go that people will stand in line if they have to, and they will vote. They will make it a point because it'll be a national holiday when he leaves office, January the 20th, late afternoon, and he's gone. And the largest crowd that ever assembled on the Washington Mall, bar none, will be there to celebrate anybody who's president. And it looks like it will be Joe Biden. Amen. I cannot wait to vote against that man. I've tried to tell different folks in Congress and other people that the health care is important. And I'm for Affordable Care Act and voted for it and was proud to. And I'm for Medicare for all and you name it. But that's not what turned the election. What turned the election was people wanted a check and balance on Trump in 2018. And that's why they elected Democrats in decent Republican districts where there were women who voted, who cared about their children, not being shot down by some other child with a gun in their school. Have you had anybody come to you and say, I want the law changed so that people who have violent misdemeanors can travel and use their carry permits in another state? No, you have to have some standard measure uh, and that's what we do in this bill. There's no standard measure in this bill. The standard measure is what the least, whatever the state has that issues the permit. And then you can carry it into another jurisdiction. And on the same issue, Mr. Chairman, has anybody come and asked you to allow people that are under 21 to be able to carry guns into states where the law requires you to be 21? For instance, Virginia is 21. Has anybody come to you and said... I'd like the 18 and 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds in Alabama and Mississippi to come to Virginia and carry their guns in your state while your citizens can't. And that's the same thing that's going to prevail in 2020. It's going to be people wanting to vote this man out of office. It's not going to be about health care, which we need. It's not going to be about the $15 an hour minimum wage, which we should have. It's about getting rid of this cancer on the democracy. Can you tell me what else is going to be in the CARE 2 bill? Well, there'll be a lot of relief for state and local governments to patch up holes from lack of sales tax revenue and expenses as well in the front lines. There will be an increase in staff payments. People are needing food. The most, the poorest people need more sustenance and they need to get staff payments. They need to be able to use their staff payments in different ways where they don't have to go to the store as well. There will be other provisions for our frontline workers, particularly our healthcare workers, and trying to reward them for what they've gone through. There are different proposals, whether it's going to be college debt forgiveness or college debt forgiveness that they could pass on to their children or bonuses, extra financial bonuses. But we want to reward those folks as well. There's going to be several other parts to it. The Republicans will fight almost, they'll fight so much. And the main thing they want 
are Trump wants a payroll tax deduction, a waiver on that, which, of course, rewards it's regressive and it rewards the people that make the most, which is typical Republican philosophy and government. And McConnell wants liability limits. And maybe there'll be a place we can come up with some liability limits so that small restaurant owners, if they put a table five and a half feet from another table rather than six, they have a chance to cure it, not be sued. But you don't want to just open up the doors and eliminate all the protections we've got for workers, whether it's OSHA protections, whether it's wage and hour protections, particularly healthcare. But you don't want to just wipe those off the books. And, and the way those are enforced are through lawsuits and, and attorneys who bring actions for violations of government standards are basically private attorney generals enforcing the law. And we know that our current attorney general, Bill Barr, will not use the law to protect workers, our customers, or anybody else. All he cares about is keeping Trump in power. I mean, I feel like that guy and McConnell are even worse than Trump. Uh, they're bad. I mean, Barr's certainly evil, but Trump, he has no conscience. Like, he has no empathy. He did something really, really, really bad to be sent to military school. And nobody's ever really talked about it, but he had to do something, I think, physically violent to an animal or to an older person or a domestic worker or mm. somebody. He did something bad and they sent him mm. off. He went broke with a casino. He's banned from having a charity and being a trustee for so many years because he steals from charities. I mean, it's like Scrooge, beyond Scrooge. Trump University, it was a bogus fraud, $25 billion settlement, but it wasn't. He, he called it Trump University. It was Trump kindergarten for people that were lost their good sense of morality and judgment by giving money to this greedy, fraudulent, narcissistic, sociopathic disgrace. It's so hard to even imagine how we're going to come out of this. And it was hard to imagine even three months ago before the pandemic. You know, I mean, just just the way that he has no regard for the Constitution, and you chair the House Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties. And it seems like each of those is under attack during the Trump years. Can you tell me a little bit about what that committee does and how it works? Well, what our committee does is we look out for issues that are based on constitutionally founded principles like choice, equal rights amendment. That's equal rights under the Constitution for women. Choice. That's a constitutional penumbral right. Came about because of Supreme Court ruling. Gay marriage, that was another court ruling and based on rights in the Constitution. We have those issues and we have other issues that present themselves to us. We have hearings and after hearings, we have markups of bills and try to proceed thereafter. Bob brought the Electoral College to us as a constitutional issue. We've had some hearings on it. We've had hearings on the president's powers to have executive orders, which he says he and Barr so they've got a bunch drawn up and they'll use them at the right time. And as Trump says, I've got powers you don't even know about. Then I have an article, too, where I have the right to do whatever I want as president, but I don't even talk about that. Well, he doesn't even know about him either. Barr's told him he hasn't. And his team has drawn up some things and gosh knows what they might be. He'll stoop to anything. And of course, recently he has said he will not allow any member of his team, his administration, or I guess correctly the coronavirus response team, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, I guess in particular, to testify before the House. It's a setup. The Democrats are out to get me. The House is all Trump haters. Well, it's not all Trump haters. You've got a bunch of Trump sycophants over on the other side, too. But he will not allow his people. We'll have to, to, to subpoena them and they'll challenge the subpoenas. Mm -hmm. I mean, never has anybody challenged subpoenas. He did it with Mueller. He's doing it here and claiming all this power and all this 
ability. He has no respect for the Constitution. He doesn't even know what the Constitution is. And this is just what he's doing from the inside. And then the fact that he's inciting violence. I mean, the whole liberate Michigan, that dangerous thing that he tweeted where people are actually protesting unprotected, right? They've got no masks on. They're confronting the police. They're storming City Hall. And it's all because of what the chaos that he has created. I almost feel like he doesn't know how to function unless there is some kind of chaos. He likes being the star on the screen. You know, and again, I have a lot of Hollywood references, but Blazing Saddles, when they get up and the guy goes, let's do that voodoo that you do so well. Yeah. I could see Trump right out with the liberators in Michigan up there standing there and go, just go on. Let's do that, the, the voodoo that you do so well. It's all smoke and mirrors, and it's all a bunch of bullshit, and more American people are going to pass away because of his inability to be a compassionate, empathetic leader. It's hurtful. You're also on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, which, God bless you, I mean, that, why no one is talking about our crumbling infrastructure. You know, I remember when Trump said it was infrastructure week basically every week and that I don't know what happened to that. But don't we really have to get serious about our infrastructure and our pipes? I mean, there's pipes in LA that downtown Los Angeles that are over 100 years old that is leaching lead. Oh, I know. And we've got old pipes in Memphis too. And you've got it in Flint, Michigan. And all over that the infrastructure is pipes and it's highways as most people think about highways and ports and all that and it's that too but it's our whole infrastructure we used to be first in the world and we're like 20 something in the world Ugh. now of course with all the money we're spending which we need to spend on relief this isn't stimulus this is relief measures and we're going to have to have more and more to give people money so they can pay their house note and that's another thing we're going to have in the bill is some relief for people on their mortgages and on their rent set up a fund that can keep these people from being put out of their houses and not make their landlords or their mortgagors responsible to eat it as well and have a fund that kind of takes care of that. But we are in very, very, very dangerous times and we're going to spend a lot of money on this, which we need to. And I'm a big devotee of Paul Krugman and Krugman thinks we can spend all the money we need. The interest is about zero and that this needs to be done. It's not going to affect our economy down the line. But when we get down to it, as soon as a Democrat gets in office, the Republicans will go back to their old mantra about the deficits and debt we have because they won't want to spend money on infrastructure because they won't want a democratic president to do it but we need to do infrastructure and peter defazio the chairman of our transportation committee has got an outstanding plan we first thought it was going to be in cares one and it didn't get there and we know it's not going to make cares two we don't know because everything we're doing is concentrating on what coronavirus has done to make it more difficult for people to get through in this economy and just survive from day to day and hour to hour so it's hard to provide for these jobs when we need to be providing for basic levels of existence. I feel like infrastructure, too. I mean, that's kind of the one issue that I feel should have bipartisan support. But still, every single administration, it seems to turn political. Transportation has always been bipartisan. That committee, I've had Democratic chairs and Republican chairs, and we've all worked together. And everybody got something out of the bill, and everybody had concerns consideration for supporting airports, supporting roads, supporting railroads, you name it. And we all had something in it, and we continue to. Now, Congress used to have something called earmarks, and we should have earmarks 
Most people in Congress want them. Most Republicans are afraid to be for them publicly. But Article 1 says the Congress shall appropriate the monies. And we appropriate the monies and we give them to president, administration, federal administration. And then some of the monies go to the states, which are elected officials, governors, et cetera. Then they decide where things are going to be spent. And the congressmen know in their districts as well, if not better, than the governor in a state or the president, certainly right. far distance, what's most important and what can make a difference there. And we cut those out in about 2010. And that took a lot of ability for people to work together. That made people work together because everybody had something in the bill they wanted. And it wasn't that much money. And Speaker Pelosi made sure that they were cleaned up at the end and still the Republicans wouldn't go for it. Somebody said earmarks are the grease that makes the machine run. And it was. It was the oil, the grease that made the machine function and run. And without it, we're stuck. And we're not doing well on that. Can you explain to my listeners what earmarks are? Congress people have a chance to say X amount of money, and it was not necessarily given out on a per member basis, but a lot on seniority and a lot on where you stood on the minority majority. The majority usually got like 60% of the earmarks. The minority might have got 40%. They divvied them up and they were divvied up based on seniority, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that you could say appropriate in the congressional appropriations bill quarter of a million dollars to the University of Memphis for a health sciences uh, program concerning coronavirus and its effect on minorities in our community mm. or whatever you wanted to do, a study or a program. I did mine at the medical school here in Memphis, and they did certain studies, University of Tennessee Medical Schools in Memphis, some with the University of Memphis trying to do some things with alternative energies. There were some of them were not as good as others, and they needed to be monitored. And there was the quote-unquote bridge to nowhere which was an expensive bridge in Alaska that wouldn't have serviced a lot of people, but it was called for and wanted by the people in the in the congressman's district, and he got it. And there were some other roads that were benefited some people, and that poisoned some people's minds about the system, and they got rid of all of them. But they should have been more transparent and more circumspect and more evenly distributed so that each district got more of the monies. And, of course, the senators had them too. There were earmarks in the Senate. But it only came to about one and a half or two percent of the entire budget, which is not a lot when you consider that 435 members of Congress and 100 senators make the budget. And if one and a half percent or whatever goes to projects that are ones that the Congress people know are important to their district, that should be the way it is. Otherwise, you just give it up to bureaucrats or a federally elected president to take the funds and put it into a wall for nowhere, a wall of no use. I and mean, he took money we'd appropriated for defense projects military families, and took that money to build his wall on the southern border, which is not a wall to stop immigration. It's a wall to appeal to people that don't know that the immigrants are the people out there picking our vegetables and helping working in those meat factories and packing up those goods to put on the trucks to get to us today that we need to, to exist. During this pandemic, we should have more understanding of the jobs that immigrants do for us that are so important to our daily existence. I mean, they're out there doing it. And a lot of immigrants are working in nursing homes and helping out our older citizens, our parents, grandparents, whatever. They are essential. Yeah. In every sense of the word, the fabric of this country and what we were founded upon, what we were built upon, and what we consider of value now, we can't do it without immigrants. They truly are essential to this country. When I was first elected, when Congress people are first elected, you traditionally go to a little three, 
day school at Harvard where you get a bunch of really brilliant people talk to you about different issues that are of importance. And there was the head of the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government was a, a demographer. And he, I remember this was back in 06, and he was telling us that Americans aren't reproducing. Our population growth rate is not anywhere near what it needs to be to continue to be the greatest economic power in the world. And we need immigration and we need lots and lots of immigrants to come to give us the workers that we need to be the economic power that we have been. And we have not had all those immigrants that we needed. And now we got Trump and they're trying to stop them from coming to this country. And that's over and beyond just the moral imperative of the Statue of Liberty and where we all came from. I mean, most all of us, unless you're American Indian, you're an immigrant. Exactly. said one time that good people don't smoke marijuana. Which of these people would you say are not good people? Well, let me answer, explain how that occurred. All right. Can I explain? Quickly. Uh, John, Kasich, I talked John about... Kasich a good person? George Pataki, Rick Santorum, Newt Gingrich, Ted Cruz, Jeb Bush, George Bush, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Judge Clarence Thomas. Which of those are not good people? You've been so gracious with your time, but I have one final question for you. There are so many issues right now facing our country. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, what do you think is the most persuasive reason to vote for Democrats instead of just against Republicans this year? Well, because Democrats believe in caring for consumers, caring for working people, caring for the majority of people in the country. And Republicans care about voting for the corporate CEOs, the corporate boards, and the people who have power now. That is their base. I think it was George Bush who spoke up at some black tie dinner. There's all these rich, rich, rich people there. And he said, this is my base. And that is the base of the mm. Republican Party. It's not the labor unions. It's not the moms against moms demand, not all those groups. So Democrats do care about justice. Democrats care about giving people an opportunity to participate in the American dream and get a chance. They believe in fairness and they believe in folks getting positions that are skilled and capable of doing the job and not just handing it out to political lackeys that will have a job and do what the president tells them to do. You know, the, the Senate's in, right now, they're trying to approve more and more judges. And the main guy they've got is a 38-year-old guy that's the Bar Association said didn't have enough experience to be a district court judge. He's a buddy of Kavanaugh's and he's a buddy of McConnell's and they got him a district court position in Kentucky. He only had it for about six months and now they want to put him on the most important appellate court in the United States uh, of America, which means he'll be there forever or until uh, they put Gorsuch or Kavanaugh making put him on the Supreme Court. And he's one that says that they should be able to maintain their memberships in the Federalist Society, which many think to be in any society is to judge tilts your perspective and your independent judgment. So Democrats are for everything good and we're for chocolate and hot fudge sundaes and burgers and fries and mm. yeah. you know what, Congressman, I I love your passion. I love your honesty, and we are so blessed to have you representing the people in Tennessee's 9th Congressional District, and I so appreciate everything that you're fighting for right now and the way in which you're doing it, which I think is really important because not only do you have empathy and you lead from a place of service, but also you're just really smart 
And you're clearly in this for the right reasons. And I thank you so much for your time today and for being a part of the podcast. I thank you for what you said. And I appreciate you. What you do as a public citizen is so important to continually try to rally people and get their consciousness raised and to speak up on the right issues. And I want to say one last thing. Nancy Pelosi, and probably most of your listeners know this, I am stoked every time I'm around her or hear her. She is just the most phenomenal. She really is emotional, but she's the most phenomenal political leader that we could ever imagine. And she's doing such a great job. She's 80 years old. She doesn't miss a beat. She doesn't miss an opportunity to speak up for the American people and to speak the truth on national TV. She never gets tired. She never loses her cool. She is unbelievable. Talk about a leader rising to the occasion. I mean, every step of the way, she has been here and done it with such grace. I heard the president say, I deserve to be the speaker. I don't think anybody deserves anything. It's not about what you have done. It's what you can do. And you know what else? I'm not sure she has or has had anyone to emulate in that position. As women, we don't have a lot of mentors that are other women that can guide how we lead. And we're kind of always making it up as we go along. And that's, I think, why, unfortunately, you know, you see a lot of women that have to play the game that has been set up by men. And then someone like Speaker Pelosi comes along and figures it out, figures out how to do it gracefully, and gives me hope. Therefore, I could be that for my daughter or young activists and the rising generation. And I'm glad you got emotional because you know what? That's what we need right now. We need people to get emotional. People are dying every day. 30 million people are out of work. And you know what? Before that, eight out of 10 people lived paycheck to paycheck. We're not in a good place. The disparity in wealth is disgraceful. And the idea that the Congress wouldn't vote for a $15 an hour wage, when you look at the people that are the frontline people, the nurses and the grocery store people and the warehouse people, they shouldn't get 15. And the corporate CEOs are making 25 and $35 million. Who do they think they are? I mean, it's just absurd. A lot's come out of this. Maybe people realize the, the inequities in our health system. It's healthy, but it's also based on finance. And we've got too many people making too much. And the Trump tax scam gave so many people so high percentage of that, like 90 percent went to the upper two percent of the society. And Trump took care of himself and the other rich people. And that's what it was. We've really got an oligarchy going in this country and it needs to end. Sometimes I look at AOC and I think what you're saying is truth. It's just not going to come about anytime soon because we've got too many people in here who are working for the man. And that's what they basically do. And they don't even think about doing anything different because they're just happy to be a cog in the wheel and look in the mirror and think, look at me and I'm here and this is what I do. But the system is messed up right now. Too much money, too much genuflection to power and the power of money. And that doesn't need to continue. And hopefully we can someday get beyond. It won't be during my lifetime, but maybe during yours. You know what kills me right now is that we have opened up the country and the unequal sacrifice. It's more inequity. The fact that the people that do not have the luxury of staying at home for another couple of months, they're going to be the ones that go back to work. And we're going to lose more of those people. 
and no life is disposable. And there is inequality in every aspect. And now we're seeing sacrifice inequality. And it's not okay. And Democrats won't stand for that. And we'll try to change it and make things fair. That's why you need to vote for Democrats. And I'll be right by your side. There seem to be some universal, fundamental things that we look for if we're going to follow somebody. Four seem to dominate the list, everybody's list. Think about your own list. We want to follow people who fundamentally we experience as being honest. They tell the truth. Now, don't get me wrong, not everybody tells the truth, but you know what happens to your level of motivation when you find out that you've been lied to. It deteriorates pretty quickly. What else do we look for in people we'd be willing to follow? We look for people who are competent. A lot of different words you could use. Competent, smart, capable, experienced, have good judgment. How many of you want to follow somebody that's stupid? Now, you know, some of you have some personal candidates in mind here, but you can think about what happens when you don't believe that somehow you're working for somebody that really knows what they're talking about. And again, you're, you're not as motivated to do what they ask you to do. You don't follow through, perhaps, with as much energy as you might otherwise. You know, I think that we have this impression that honesty is a rare thing in politics. And maybe it is. But mostly, in my experience, the people who are elected to Congress and stick around are good people who care about their constituents. They genuinely want to do the right thing. And the question they face is whether or not they can withstand outside pressures pushing them in different directions. And that's why we have to work so much harder to get money out of politics. Because whether or not it is corrupting, and it often is, just look at the NRA. It gives the appearance of corruption. People like Congressman Cohen, those who are on the surface honest, feel harder to find than they should be. It's bad for us. We need a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. We need to end the overflowing river of dark money and the outsized power it affords wealthy people and industries. And we need to elect good, honest, smart, and caring officials like Steve to get that done. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 